0: You are listening to episode 41 of Dave's Daredevil podcast in which Hornhead faces stiltman for the first time in a high-flying classic issue. It's me, Dave, aka J. David Weeder. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, Episode 41, the show devoted completely to Marvel's Man Without Fear, Daredevil. This week, I'm bringing Stiltman out of mothballs. Yes, I know, we covered Stiltman in Episode 4, with Issue 26, but I wanted to talk about Stiltman again, so why not the first appearance if we're going chronologically? I'm not making a case for Stiltman, there's no Stiltman apologists. Nobody's going to be trying to defend Stiltman. But, having said that, I like Stiltman. I like Stiltman a lot. Mainly because he was in that issue 26, which was my first Daredevil comic. If you go back to episode 4, you will hear me tell the tale of reading Daredevil for the first time at the top of these little steps that led from the sidewalk to my walkway, which then in turn led to the front door of that house. And that's where I used to do all my comic reading. Some magic happened there. Recently, I did take a drive down that little road. It's way out of my way, but I don't mind a revisit to the old neighborhood from time to time. And I took a look at those steps and kind of the neighborhood that's a little worn down. Definitely time has not been kind, but it's not ravaged the neighborhood either. But I had a weird moment where I realized there's an association in my head with Stiltman and this sort of neighborhood character of sorts that would walk down the road. I don't know the guy's name, but he was a little portly fellow wore big soda bottle glasses, horn-rimmed, dressed in a khaki shirt, khaki pants, usually the pants were a slightly darker shade of khaki, and wore this hat that looked like the the same hat that would be worn by Curious George's owner. So it's kind of the man in the yellow hat except khaki. Thing is, this guy would wait at the bus stop, which was eh, across the street, just up the road a bit. Still visually accessible, and you could kind of hear him. And I say hear him because the man talked to himself consistently. And it's not like he was muttering to himself, thinking out loud. He was having an out-and-out argument with himself. He wasn't close enough that I could hear the full-on content of that argument. But every time I'd see him, you know, he'd be walking down the street, and his voice sounded a little bit like Porky Pig without the stutter. But I realized I associated this man with Stiltman. Why and how? I don't know. I was nine years old. Somehow, these two are intertwined. What does that have to do with this week's issue? I don't know. I just realized how weird it is that, you know, kids associate maybe visual or audio cues with what they're absorbing in terms of material. For example, seeing a a well-known movie from your childhood at that certain theater ingrains that theater in you because that's part of the experience. We associate location sometimes with the experience of reading a really formative story for us. So never discount where you read your comics. If you still have a monthly pull list, or if you're pouring through back issues, choose a location that will be memorable, because you're creating a little bit of a comfort food for the mind. This location is where I experienced this, and this is how I experienced it. These are the smells, these are the noises in the background. And maybe I'm being a little CDO with that, that's OCD in the proper alphabetical order, but I always choose a location where I can have a meal, a little bit of an ambient noise, and the most important thing to me is light. I will sit near a window, especially in the summer when the sunlight's streaming in, and just create an experience so the next time I reopen that book, I have that experience coming back to my mind. In some cases, it's great, like the little stoop I talked about. In other cases, the association's a bit odder, like a strange khaki man walking down the street talking to himself. But there you go. So, what we are doing this week is covering Daredevil number 8, which is the first appearance of Stiltman. I know, it's a little bit backwards, I covered issue 26 first, but sue me. I promised you I would cover an issue of Daredevil each week, and that's pretty much what I'm doing with a few exceptions. Mainly next week and the week after, but you'll see. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised with what I've pulled. But I'm about ready to dive into that, but first, before we do, I'm going to play a podcast promo for Sean Engel's Just One of the Guys. Sean was nice enough to have me on a while back now for an episode where we discussed a Green Lantern 80-page giant, one of my first recordings after my quote-unquote retirement, or hiatus, if you will, and I got to talk about some Plastic Man. Another thing that associates with that neighborhood, because I was always fascinated with stretchy characters. But I'm going to elaborate more on that next week, since we have a stretchy character appearing. For now, enjoy Sean's promo, and I will be back in just one moment.
1: Hi folks, Sean Ingle here. And Strange Disembodied Voice voice here. here. And we're here to talk about the new direction going on over at Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Like our in depth coverage of the Howard Chicken pen Guy Gardner collateral damage. No, because that book was utter s. But we are moving into the Judd Winnick run on Green Lantern, where we'll get stories about psychotic ring wielders, teenage sexual identity issues, and Kyle becoming a nearly godlike being. And yet, still not as weird as Guy Gardner's warrior face. Yeah, you may have a point there. Plus, we'll be covering the ancillary books that came out at the same time, including Circle of Fire, A Thousand and One Emerald Knights, The Black Circle Green Arrow Crossover, and so much more. Which would easily make up for not covering collateral damage. <sighs> also, if you're subscribing to the show via iTunes, be sure to go to Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys to make sure you get new episodes updated weekly. So they kicked you off the main feed? No, they just streamlined it, so the Two True Freaks proper shows would only be on it. Are you sure it's, sure not, it's not because Scott, Scott, Scott doesn't, doesn't want a Green want Lantern, Lantern, Lantern podcast on the network? Uh, no. In fact, he's spoken very glowingly about the show. I mean, he's even offered to come on into a guest bit. He said he really likes it, and despite his fact that he doesn't like Green Lantern all that much, he's come really check out Just One of the Guys over at 2TrueFreaks.com and subscribe on iTunes at 2 Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys. You'll be glad you did. Or double your money back.
0: And we are back as promised. We are covering Daredevil number eight, which bears a cover date of June 1965. The cover has Daredevil dropping from the sky, Billy Club line connected to Stiltman who is towering over him. A newspaper touts the Daredevil versus Stiltman fight and the text reads, Soaring to still greater heights of glory. And generally, I like this cover. The corner box has kind of the same Daredevil standing arms crossed from last issue, but now we have radar circles emanating from him. And I think radar circles can be overused, but very rarely, because I love that visual element of Daredevil. Now, I originally read this in digital from Marvel Digital Unlimited, and in the digital, the sky looks white. And this ruins a pretty good gray cloud effect. Because in the original cover, it looks like they're fighting on kind of a murky, rainy day. It loses some of the moodiness. The composition still stands, because you have Stiltman, who's a human jungle gym. As far as Stiltman, he's either a blast to draw for artists, or just the worst nightmare. He lends himself to these fun angles. But at the same time, it can ruin a composition if you just have a fairly static Stiltman image. He has a lot of potential if the artist wants to use that potential. Daredevil's plummeting. His line's not taut. It looks to be hooked to Stiltman's leg, but the thing about this cover is... It's kind of intense because you don't know if that line is going to hold. Is that hook going to catch? Is the line going to go taut? Or is Daredevil going to go splat? But all of this is subtle. Wood is just letting the art tell the story, which is what a great artist does. And that subtlety is what elevates this particular cover from a pretty standard stock image to something really exciting. So it's a fun cover with a cool angle, and it's the first cover to have Daredevil using his signature Billy Club line. The story within is The Stilt Man Cometh, written by Stan Lee with art by Wally Wood and lettered by Sam Rosen. If you don't want to shell out big bucks for this, you can find it reprinted in Marvel Super Heroes no. 28, Marvel Masterworks Vol. 17, that's Daredevil Volume 1, Essential Daredevil Vol. 1, which I recommend, or Marvel Digital, Comixology, and Marvel Unlimited apps and diving into the story. The issue opens with Daredevil, already in action, as a driverless car is careening down a New York street toward a woman calling for help. The man without fear whisks the woman out of harm's way and then jumps into the car to get it under control, only to find it is a death trap. Not only is the gas pedal nailed to the floor, there's also a bomb under the hood. While Daredevil deals with that, the villain stilt man uses his height to rob a helicopter. Daredevil drives the car into the river and leaps out at the last moment, but deduces, correctly, that this had to be a distraction. He uses the snooper scope in his new billy club to listen to the sounds of the city and learns of the towering villain. But when Daredevil pursues Stiltman, the villain vanishes. Matt goes back to the offices of Nelson and Murdoch where Karen is urging Matt to look into a doctor who can potentially restore Matt's sight. And then Foggy walks in on the conversation, takes it all wrong, awkwardness ensues. Matt then interviews a new client, Wilbur Day, who wants to help with a patent case. Day claims that his former boss, Carl Caxton, has stolen his hydraulic inventions. Matt contacts Caxton, hoping that the case can be settled out of court, but Caxton remains vigilant, and now Matt has a fight on his hands. Alright, stopping there for just a moment... Here on the first page, there is this cool circular effect in the upper corner box. Not only do we get an icon box outside, we get an icon on the first title page. And the title page, correctly, works as a second cover, drawing the reader in because the action just starts right out. In the corner box is Daredevil's head. Again, his face is somewhat obscured by his logo. But the radar effects are, again, they're just visually great. Earlier artists used the more echolocation correct ping, 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 but the radar effect, it's hard to really mess that up, I'll be honest with you. You can screw up the line on Daredevil's Billy Club, you can overuse that, and many have, but the radar effect is something that is kind of the best tool in the toolbox, and it makes this fairly static icon box up here really pop. Now, to kind of explain a little bit more about Wood's style, the more modern artists that I would equate him to would be Chris Samney, And really a lot of Mike Alred, especially on this opening page. They're very reminiscent, the sort of cartoony, yet really oddly realistic, paradoxical look. And I love this opening page. This is exactly what a comic should be, because we drop right into the action with Daredevil saving Jackie Kennedy from a driverless car. Now, I'm sure that's not supposed to be Jackie Kennedy, but darn it, I see Jackie Kennedy. And then not only that, not only do we get him whisking this woman out of harm's way, which is kind of fun, swashbuckling adventure stuff, He jumps in the car and there's a bomb? This is, and you'll pardon the pun, a bombastic opening. This is exactly what you want from a comic. Something where you open the page and you're drawn in right from get-go. And of course, this is all a distraction for Stiltman, who is incredibly intelligent for the robbery he pulls off. Basically, this helicopter is delivering payrolls. And these guards are laxed because, well, they're in a whirlybird, as they call it. So really, who's going to rob a helicopter? Simple answer stilt man and he's almost polite about it he appears in front of them says to halt he doesn't rough any of them up they try to shoot at him and of course that ricochets off of his armor but really he doesn't make any real attempt to assault the guards and the main reason is well he's in control so i like brains in a villain i like them being well spoken you know you want that from a villain that's a higher caliber of villain and really, when you think about 1965, the idea of a skyjacking is kind of genius. And of course, Daredevil climbs up a tower and uses his snooper scope. Yes, you heard that right in the synopsis. You heard me say it just now a snooper scope. Why does Daredevil's Club have a snooper scope? Well, the simple idea is they were trying to turn Daredevil's Billy Club into a one unit utility belt. So thankfully, Wood has given us a diagram of the Billy Club to show us everything inside it. And you know what? It looks really plausible when you look at it this way. I also saw this particular diagram used in the Les Daniels book, Marvel, 50 Years of the World's Greatest Comics. And the diagram shows what the club includes, which has the signature swinging line. It has this microphone, which not only works as a snooper scope, but it also works with the included tape recorder. Now, the tape recorder isn't new. Tape recorder's been included. It started as a bluff in issue one, and then Daredevil thought, why don't I include that? But to see it here, again, the size and the way it's shown with the cutaway casing, it looks like, yeah, that could probably work. And then we have a projectile launcher. Now, we saw this in Issue 7. I didn't mention it because I wanted to get into it here. But in Issue 7, he hurled smoke at Namor. We're going to see more of this projectile launcher. And then it shows the reflector shield. And again, this is splitting into two parts. So how different is this from the club we've seen so far? Well, the original Billy Club had only a few real features. You had the idea of the handle straightening and splitting. That we know. But normally he would use it as a standard cane. He would use the hook to grab and swing onto things. He wouldn't necessarily split it unless he was putting it in his holster. But to me, the effect was very vaudevillian in those early issues. I mean, it looked like he could just as well do a WB frog dance. As well as hook the owl or something. Now, this one was very low-tech. There's a cotter pin at one point that was stuck in the hinge, which Daredevil used as a lockpick in issue three. And then the recorder was in there, but at one time there was a roll of fabric, which he used against the Purple Man in issue number four. And then finally, the club would actually angle at the center, so he could use it as a boomerang, which he also did in issue number four. To me, the tech-heavy Daredevil kind of takes away some of the charm. The idea that he has all these little gadgets, he can shoot projectiles, it just doesn't charm me in the way that I would like. I like the idea of Daredevil being this blind man with a stick fighting all kinds of crime. And I think that was kind of the the realization that's come to down the road because slowly you would see the Billy Club become less technical and more of a throwing weapon or you know a beating weapon, if you will, as well as a swinging line. And of course, Daredevil's chasing Stiltman, having used Snooper Scope to get the feel of the people around the city, and a fairly good image, very reminiscent of the Teen Brigade over in Hulk. A lot of different floating heads, things of that nature. But why can't Daredevil use his senses like he did in a Frank Miller run? I don't know. Maybe they hadn't thought the senses through yet. We're still early enough where Daredevil's entering his phase of refinement. He's a great idea, but he's not very polished. And of course, chasing Stiltman, Stiltman vanishes. Well, you know, retracting the legs isn't exactly magic. I mean, wouldn't Matt figure out, hey, the guy's got to get down somewhere. But this yields to a more Karen-Matt foggy love triangle. And I've missed this. I've missed this so much. It's one of the reasons I wanted to come back here, was just revisiting these old, somewhat simpler times. Definitely more happy, considering what Daredevil was being dragged through under the pen of Miller. But, revisiting these, I can look at this relationship with new eyes. Because I know Karen a bit more. For me, initially, I didn't like Karen at all. I thought she was horrid and frigid, any other analogies you want to use. But now that I know her a bit more, and I've kind of got her in my sights, having learned about her and her background with her father, and how he was always distant, and she thought if she could fix him, she could fix the relationship, and how that applies to her and Matt, I'm happy to see her. Now, unfortunately, having said that, this is also an issue where Karen is pushing for Matt to have an operation to restore his eyesight, and it used to be just very abrasive to me. It's not so much anymore because her intent is actually a little bit clearer to me, because it really is that she feels that this handicap is between them. If they can remove that, they can marry and be happy and be normal, which is kind of what Matt's afraid of. No, not fear of commitment, but fear of not being Daredevil anymore. And at one point I'm going to cover a story that kind of plays with that notion. But I'm going to leave that laying where it is. And then we're going to get back to the story where we have a case regarding patent law. Yes, patent law. How riveting. But back to the story. Matt heads back to his apartment and stews over Stiltman a bit and then uses his radio-infused hood to find Stiltman robbing a party on a high-rise terrace. Stiltman proves to be a potent foe and eludes Daredevil with one blow from his mechanical stilts. Later, as Matt is discussing the case with Wilbur Day, Caxton arrives at the office. Matt tries to use his human lie detector skills to find out if Caxton is the thief or if Day is making all this up, but the men are standing too close to one another to gauge the heartbeats. On a hunch, Matt trails Caxton when he leaves and finds Caxton's high-tech car which delivers an electric shock to Daredevil. And then, Stiltman shows up again. Matt tries to leap from a smokestack to hit Stiltman from high, but gets shaken off by the retracting leg, and Stiltman gets away once again. Alright, jumping back out of the story and back into commentary. Here on page 7, and I'm going from the page numbers in the comic itself, which is included in the reprints that I have seen, but you get a cutaway of Matt's apartment on page 7. It's not the brownstone that we know. It's actually got one floor. Now, he has apparently a second apartment, a hidden apartment, below that, and that's where his gym equipment is, which he uses to great effect. Five whole panels of gymnastics. Can you think of anything more exciting? I can, fighting a villain. But that's not my biggest gripe. My gripe is this more tech-based costume. His hood actually has an array for, well, radios. And the horns act as antenna. Again, to repeat my point from earlier, I think this lessens Daredevil a bit. It diminishes that swashbuckling aspect of him, and it makes him a little less special to have to use these gadgets when he's got all of these senses at his disposal. But I'm not going to beat that dead horse anymore, so... I've stated what I needed to, let's move on to Stiltman robbing a rooftop terrace. And apparently, Stiltman uh, has developed this vacuum that's kind of like the suck cut. Well,
2: as you can see, it sucks as it cuts! (laughs)
0: And while at the same time I find it kind of charming in that 60s kitsch kind of way, I'm just wondering, can we get Wilma Flintstone's Mastodon Vacuum? Because that would really ratchet this story up to 11. Now, lest people say that Stiltman is a worthless villain, I just want to point out Daredevil Learns the Hard Way that Stiltman's hydraulic legs pack a huge wallop. Hydraulics can move pretty quickly and with a lot of force. Now, I'll say Stiltman has not been used to his full potential. Again, he's normally used as comedic shtick. He shows up for basically the punchline of a joke. But if a competent writer were to get a hold of him, you would see some magic with this villain. He is packed with good potential, and I don't think he's yet to reach that potential. But we move back to the patent Law case, and Matt and Wilbur having a conversation. Can you think of anything more exciting than talking heads? This is definitely not the Marvel style. Marvel style, from Stan Lee's own viewpoint, was action, action, action. Make it dynamic. Now, I will say that even though this is Talking Heads, we get a lot of good cross-hatching, these scritchy-scratchies. For example, we're seeing from behind Matt, through his glasses, we see Wilbur. And it's a wonderful effect. It looks even better in the essential in black and white than it does in color. And the same effect is used for Daredevil's radar. Of course, we have the rings. But we kind of have this transparent version of the room, almost like a screen of, of sorts. And you can see the outline of Caxton. I like when the radar sense is given its own visual identity. Kind of like in the early issues of Mark Wade's run, when we would see basically the words form the shapes of whatever Daredevil was sensing. That was an incredibly good effect. And this kind of moves along that same idea. Now, I do want to note that Caxton and Day, even though they're kind of one-off guest stars, they have extremely distinctive features. They look real. They're not just stock characters. Day looks like a standard milk toast, Caxton looks like an older gentleman. Very sharp features. And I like that that level of workmanship was put into what is essentially throwaway characters. We're not going to see these characters again in this form. And we found the Achilles heel to the lie detector. Both of these men are standing way too close. So their heartbeats are mixing. Again, this is an early Daredevil without refinement, not just in terms of the character being written as a newer character, but also in his early part of his career. So eventually he would be able to distinguish them and identify them. And I like that there's sort of a pin in the map, so to speak, of Daredevil's evolution. We can trace the evolution and the effectiveness of using his gifts. Too bad those gifts don't help him with Caxton's car. Caxton's car is apparently the Batmobile. It's full of all kinds of gadgets. And I thought at first, yes, this is a good Batmobile reference, but then I realized what this is. Ladies and gentlemen, you may know Caxton's car from the arcade classic and bane of my early teenage years at Aladdin's Castle, Spy Hunter. Yes, we all remember Spy Hunter, a game that allegedly doesn't end. I wouldn't know because I was asked to, and politely asked at that, to, to go ahead and leave Aladdin's Castle for the day because I was using inappropriate language. And those sounds are not acceptable at Aladdin's Castle. But speaking of sound effects, the effects in this issue are great. For the guns, we have sound effects like puka puka and Rat Tat Tat. It's got a real James Cagney vibe to it as the cops are chasing Stiltman. And then Daredevil tries a different tact, which I like. He tries climbing the smokestack so he can hit Stiltman high and avoid the legs. And yet I'm staring at the smokestack wondering, is that the same smokestack that Peter Parker will one day dump his clone into? Maybe, but it's a well-drawn smokestack. And also the shot of Daredevil falling through the air is actually really dynamic, both in black and white in color, more so in black and white, to be honest with you. Wood is definitely getting a handle on Daredevil, which is kind of a bummer because, well, Wood will be leaving the book shortly. In fact, this is probably our last Wally Wood Daredevil comic that we will cover on the show. And to kind of build on a point I made last week, I think if Wood had remained on the book, he would have gotten this handle on this character, which I think he was well, well on his way. He's doing a great job, even though really you saw Daredevil being a little puffy. He's tightening that up with this issue. He's learning some of the tricks of the red costume. But I think Wood would have been a legendary Daredevil artist on the level of Gene Colan. But Wood left because of the internal politics, and according to Marvel, the untold story, he was not happy with Stan Lee after Stan Lee made a little jab at him. So kind of a lot of potential that we never got to see, and we'll probably always wonder what could have been. But if that bums you out, let me cheer you up with the fact that Stiltman's walking away, and he's doing the happy Leonardo walk. He's chipper as he's taking a stroll. Now, I do want to point out more seriously that he is walking over what looks to be the George Washington Bridge. The George Washington Bridge is listed as being 600 feet high, about 55 stories, if that will give you a, a frame of reference. Now, while I mentioned Stiltman has a lot of potential, both visually and as far as being a strong foe, the physics of Stiltman don't hold up, and I'm sure Blaine Dowler will definitely want to chip in on this one, because he's got a lot more physics knowledge than I do. But... Looking at it, the legs should lose some stability the taller they get. Just logically. Because we're not dealing with a size change. It's just vertically, straight up. And you can say the hydraulics stabilize it. I kind of get that. It's still a little flimsy. And I know they add ideas like gyroscopes, things like that. But again, the stability shouldn't be there. He should be wavering in the wind. And there's also the space issue. For Stiltman to swing his legs to take these big, long strides, there's just not enough space there because... He's stepping over a bridge. So he's standing on one straight stilt as the other steps over it. More than likely, he's retracting it and then re-employing it. But still, there's a few seconds or more that he's just standing there on one leg, kind of wobbling. And since his torso and arms are regular proportions at the top, he has no way to really offset his balance. I know, gyroscope and the simple no prize, it's hydraulics. Or the ultimate excuse, it's the 60s. It still gets a pass for the most part, just don't poke at that no prize with a pin or it may burst. But with that set up, we are ready to go into the third and final act, the Great Climax. So let's jump back into the story and wrap up Daredevil number eight. Suspecting Caxton to be the Stiltman, Matt returns to his office where Wilbur Day is waiting. With Day accompanying him, Matt goes to Caxton's estate and finds Stiltman's legs on the lawn. But Caxton finds Day and Matt. But Wilbur turns violent and attacks Caxton and then turns on Matt, who rolls with the blow. This allows Matt to slip away and change into Daredevil as Wilbur is distracted. He finds Wilbur in Caxton's lab, where Wilbur has found his primary goal, his primary target. A molecular condenser. This is a device that shrinks things into nothingness. Daredevil tries to engage Day in battle, but a control panel falls on Hornhead, which allows Day to get away, now in his stiltman legs. Matt uses his billy club to hitch a ride on a train and pursue Day, who tries to blast Daredevil with the condenser. But in the fight, the ray strikes Day, shrinking the villain down to nothing. Later, Matt returns to his office where Caxton is angry about this trespass. But when Matt says he convinced Day to drop the case, Caxton is willing to forget the whole thing. But Matt isn't off the hook with Karen. When he waffles on seeing the doctor to restore his eyesight, Karen accuses him of wanting to hide behind his handicap. And Matt is left to wonder if she might just be worth losing his Daredevil abilities for. So, the big twist, which I probably spoiled in episode four, is that Wilbur Day is Stiltman. The Milk Toast is the bad guy. But here's the thing that bothers me. After Matt pursued Caxton and went into battle with Stiltman, Matt goes back to his own office where Wilbur is sleeping, or pretending to, I assume. So, basically, Wilbur went out as Stiltman... Fought Daredevil and then went back to the office. Okay. A. What was he doing out as Stiltman? Was he pursuing Caxton? That's a possibility. Was he just trying to make a ruckus? Was he trying to frame Caxton? We're never really told. And that leads to another question how and when did Wilbur plant his Stiltman legs at Caxton's house? You could say he probably walked out to Caxton's house, planted the Stiltman legs, and then went back to the office, but if that's the case, How did he beat Matt back to the office? There's a lot of logic that doesn't apply here. You can no prize it by saying, yes, he left the legs earlier, went back to the office, but Matt wasn't too far off from the, the office building. We're talking a matter of blocks where Caxton's house is out in the suburbs. Having mapped a few traffic patterns in New York, I'm pretty certain that even if Caxton had a cab waiting or a car waiting, he still couldn't get back in time and then sit down to pretend to sleep. And it doesn't really hold up because if Wilbur was back and pretending to sleep, that's fine. But if he had just rushed back to the office, Matt would have caught the elevated heartbeat and accelerated respiration. So it's one of those things where that fight existed just to be a fight, just to move the issue along and put some excitement in. Which is kind of needed because, well, nothing says riveting climax to an issue like going to a serene suburban home. Now, this really started to lose me as we left the city and went to this nice estate, but then Wilbur judo-chops Caxton. He judo-chops him like he's been trained by Captain America, and then he fires up his pimp hand for Matt. Wilbur pulls a Kaiser Soze. And granted, I knew who Wilbur was, I knew all along, I knew the story, I'd read this issue about four or five times previously, but that scene always gets me how quick that switch happens. And then I run right back into another logic trap. The object of Wilbur's desire, the main thing he wants more than anything, is this molecular condenser. So, why didn't he steal that after he stole the stilt man legs? He's robbed a helicopter, he can't rob a suburban estate? Because think about this, all the robberies he committed prior to this were tech-savvy, but wouldn't the molecular condenser help more than some of the other things like this suck cut? And let's talk a little bit more about this condenser because Day says that Caxton was developing it to help industry. How does this help industry? Maybe in the HR? That makes that a little bit easier. But I think what he means is this is a prototype. It wasn't meant to shrink it down to nothing or else it's going to help in the waste industry, which, hey, that could remove pollution. But maybe it was eventually going to have some sort of calibration to shrink things down to a certain size and density which could be used for better shipping. But then I think about the fact that we are looking at the Marvel Universe. Things shrinking, that happens all the time. Have they never heard of Hank Pym? But once the last fight starts moving, it develops a sort of Western-style fight. Daredevil's on a train. He's chasing Wilbur Day. It's very Lone Ranger. And then, of course, it ends with Wilbur Day reaping what he sows and getting shrunk down to nothing. Now, we know he'll be back. I covered issue number 26. But there's something delicious about a villain getting dispatched with something of his own machinations. I've always been a fan of that, even if it's not enforced by the comic code. Because, well, irony is pretty ironic. But here's my big question, and yes, this is a logic trap again. Matt comes back to the office and says, well, Wilbur Day dropped the case. Well, isn't somebody going to eventually notice that Wilbur Day is gone? Does Wilbur not have family? Does he not have another job? And I know we're not talking about an age where Facebook exists or GPS, but somebody should eventually put two and two together and say, you know, something's not right here. Because what if Caxton wanted to apply assault charges? He would have been well within his rights. How is dropping the lawsuit really beneficial if Caxton is in the right? And Matt broke onto his estate, bringing his client, who then judo-chopped Caxton. This lie could have easily backfired on Matt. Luckily... Or unluckily, depending on how you look at it morally. It never comes back up to light, but that's some pretty shady action. But luckily it lets everything off the hook, so we wrap up in a one-off issue. Except for Karen and the operation, the ongoing subplot. And it occurs to me that, well, for a man without fear, Matt has some fear of losing his abilities. Had I read and reviewed this issue in chronological order, if this would have been episode 3, I probably would have rolled my eyes at Karen. And again, knowing more, I understand. But at the same time, now I kind of want to point the finger at Matt. Matt professes to love Karen. He wants to marry her. But his Daredevil identity is in the way. Karen wants Matt to love her, loves him, but feels that his handicap is in the way. And the thing is, Karen's not wrong. Matt's abilities are what staves him off from seeking out this operation. Now, for him, it's primarily wanting to be Daredevil. But at this point... Is it such a bad thing for Matt to say, I've done some good in the city. I've done some extraordinary things. Now it's time for me to put this hood down and marry Karen and be happy. He's not driven by the ghost of Jack Murdoch. That has resolved itself. What is motivating Matt? Just the idea of doing good? Well, do more in the courtroom. Do more good by marrying Karen and simply making yourself happy. And I just realized how Dr. Phil I'm starting to sound, so I'm going to stop right there and just give you my final verdict on this issue. It's not a seminal issue. It doesn't give us a new costume or anything like that. Really what it does, it, in- it introduces a B-list villain in Stiltman. And you would think with the end of this issue, the way everything resolved itself, that would be the end of it. It's well told it's done. But Stiltman comes back again and again and again. And why? Because he is a visual character. Being able to play with those angles and the way Daredevil fights him is much more exciting than somebody like the Matador or needing a reboot Kill Raven style. Every now and then we come close to scratching that potential. It just never really hits that point. Overall, with this issue, I read it. I enjoyed it. There was a lot of logic traps, but they were excusable because it moved the story. But as soon as I put this down, it was kind of out of my mind. However, I was entertained and let us never... Never forget, for as much as we gripe and complain as fanboys and fangirls, let us never forget that comics are entertainment. We read these to enjoy them, to take up some of our time and make us smile, or make us feel for these characters. Having enjoyed an issue and forgot an issue is not a negative. It succeeded in entertaining me. It didn't break any new ground, but I had fun, and that's the point. Now, just to let you know a little bit, since we're skipping ahead next week, Matt does go to that doctor. And the doctor is in a medieval village. He lives in a giant castle, which should, of course, put up a red flag. So, yeah, the guy is a villain. He's up to nefarious things. But that is that for this week. Next week, Marvel's first family needs help. And Daredevil answers the call in Fantastic Four number 39, the first of a two-parter. That's right. It's a crossover happening in seven days. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark.
2: He is the one that call a man without fear. Never far away whenever things is near. There's devil, fight for what is right. There's fight for you tonight.
0: You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Or stream it on the Stitcher app, which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form. The show is on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.
2: Oh, he must hide his